Nice. This call is being recorded. Thank you, Dory, so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Mamie, uh, the feeling is mutual. So before we get into all of the expertise that you have to share, I just want to comment. I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I am really excited to have you here because you are one of my like superstar role models, and I just love you and your work so much. Um, we were introduced at a conference, not a conference, like a networking event, and when I got to meet you, my heart was racing and I was doing a little happy dance in my head. And the whole time I was thinking, don't let her think you're like a crazy stalker girl because I just love your work so much. So. <laughs> you are so kind. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So I'm again, I'm really happy to have you here. So, you know, one of the things that I love about your work so much is that you really do so many different things. In my mind, you have got like a million things happening. You have written books, you write blogs, you travel the country and speak. You are doing so many things and many I probably don't even know about. So in that process, you have become a productivity expert. And I'm curious if you were kind of naturally an organized and productive person to begin with, if you've become a productivity expert by trying to figure out how do I do all of these things and make it work? Just what's your productivity journey been? I have always been interested in productivity. I, um, I, I like to, to get things done. I like to maximize my time. I mean, it's just sort of a very satisfying feeling. Um, I, I think that the, the core secret may be um, just having learned from my mom. This is probably not <laughs> in, in, in many ways. It's a, it's a really good thing. And in other ways, it's probably not, but she is just the hardest worker that I know. And she has an extremely hard time stopping. Like she will, she will comp she will just go at a task until that task is done. And she doesn't really feel good resting until it is taken care of. And I try to moderate myself, but I think that uh, that in some ways I've probably internalized her example a little bit. Um, but but on, on the bright side, you uh, you really can get a lot done when you're not on Facebook. <laughs> Well, and you uh, wrote an article about your experience time tracking, and you don't actually spend that much time on Facebook. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, people might say, well, you know, but you're active, you're posting things. But I actually, that's actually something that I have largely outsourced. Um, if there are messages that people write to me um, through social media channels, I will respond to those. But in terms of proactively posting things or sharing articles or, or whatnot, um, I have a trusted social media consultant that I've been working with for the past five years. And she's taken on a greater and greater share of doing that. So I actually really barely look at social media with the exception of spending time moderating the, uh, the private Facebook group for the recognized expert course and community that I run. But in terms of, of generally spending time on it, I, I know that it is uh, kind of a dangerous rabbit hole. And so I try not to go there. So tell me more about what you learned in your time tracking experiment, because I found that article you wrote to be fascinating, and I think our listeners will too. Yeah, thank you so much. So I was sort of inspired by a friend of mine named Laura Vanderkam, who is a productivity and, and time management expert. Um, I was actually just a couple of days ago at her 
book launch party for uh, for her her newest book. Um, she's written now five books on productivity, which are really fantastic. And uh, anyway, she is a big advocate of time tracking. And so I decided essentially as kind of part of my my New Year's resolutions for uh, for 2018, that I was going to give this a try to see what I could learn about myself and what I was actually doing and whether my time was aligning with my stated priorities. So I took the month of February and I tracked every, you know, every chunk of time that I spent down to half hour increments uh, throughout the course of the month to really see what what I was doing. Um, you know, how, how did it stack up? How did my perception of it align with reality? And so I did learn a few interesting things. Um, the first is that I actually was spending a lot more time reading and taking in content than than I had imagined, which, you know, this was a part that kind of made me feel good. Um, a habit that I had adopted adopted, which um, I think is a pretty useful one for people who, you know, if, if you hear it and agree with it, um, I heartily encourage you to do it, is um, there's a lot of talk in our culture about how bad multitasking is. But the multitasking that's bad is kind of the attention switching or the task switching multitasking. So like if you're going from writing a memo to writing an email or something like that, and you're kind of back and forth, there are certain activities that you absolutely can be legitimately doing two things at the same time. For instance, you might be cooking dinner and listening to a podcast, or you might be, uh, you know, at the gym and listening to an audiobook or whatever it is, or maybe you're at the gym with a friend. And so you're, um, you're chatting while you're on the treadmill, you know, whatever it is, but, but you can very easily do both of those things well. And so in my time tracking, I actually, if, if there was an activity like that, where I could do two things simultaneously, well, I counted them twice and it ended up meaning, first of all, that I was spending uh, you know, multiple hours a day, over two hours a day reading, um, because I, I often read on commutes or I read during meals if I'm by myself. Um, I was having, you know, an additional one plus hour a day of, uh, of listening to audio content. And overall, you know, here's, here's the thing that I liked best. There are 168 hours in a week. I was actually able to get over 20% more hours, I say in quotation marks, because we know that's not actually true, but but more hours because of um, being able to do this sort of strategic multitasking. Um, so I was I was able to really leverage it that I was, you know, maxing out spending more time with friends or more time exercising or more time reading uh, because of, of just efficiencies in the process. And so if we want, if we want to create more hours, there actually is a way to do it. Um, so that was one of the biggest learnings that I had. Can I just say that I find that to be so insightful. Um, I did an, uh, like an online live webcast, something or other, I don't even know what it's called anymore, where I talked about my, my um, personal development hack as being listening to podcasts on my commute that helped me learn and gain ideas to improve myself. And that there's, I just don't have time in my day to like go take a class on professional development for like how to be better at whatever it is I want to be better at. But I do have time for about an hour every single day on my commute to learn something. And so I, I love the way that you counted your hours twice in that because it really does mean we can get more done with the same number of hours in the day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, so many people feel bad about things that they wish they could be doing things, you know, and you hear all, especially, oh, I wish I could read more or something like that. I mean, that's a very common refrain among my friends. But um, if, if you just sort of reformat it, 
a, a little bit as you're thinking about it. And, and also maybe be flexible about whether you're listening to something versus reading it. It gives you so many opportunities. I mean, literally, you know, just just yesterday, I um, I had a meeting to go to in Midtown and I decided to download a new book that I wanted to read. And by the time I got home at the end of the night, I had managed to to listen to about an hour and 10 minutes worth of the book just, you know, through being, you know, being there through the, the commute. I mean, it, it adds up and it's very, very easy to get in a book a week that way. That's wonderful. All right. Keep going. What else did you learn? <laughs> well, one thing that I uh, that I learned that was actually a little surprising for me is probably like most people, I feel just pathologically and and chronically uh, oppressed by email. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of horrible. It's kind of this never ending. You know, you just you just can't crawl out of the hole of email and people wanting responses. Um, and so I had this perception in my head that I was spending three or four hours a day on email. Like it just felt endless. And what I discovered in actuality was that I was only spending about uh, a, a little less than an hour and a half per day, 1.35 hours per day on email. And, you know, that's actually not that bad <laughs> in the scheme of things. I looked at that and I thought, oh, like, really? Like, how is it that it accounts for such a disproportionate amount of my stress when it's actually just a tiny sliver of my day. I mean, I spent more time reading than I did doing email. And yet email felt like this thing that was getting ready to take over and cripple my life. And so that was kind of an interesting reality check for me that the amount of time you spend on something and the psychological pressure or weight that it carries are not necessarily correlated at all. And that there, there may be strategies that you could do that can ease some of that. And so in fact, I, I'm in the process of trying to find a way to operationalize it now, um, maybe on a you know subsequent uh, sequel appearance, I can tell you more about this, but I'm actually as inspired by that, trying to work out a new strategy with my assistant to think about ways that I can, that I can deal with email more efficiently. Um, just to, to, you know, because it's, what I realize is it's not about time. It's about it's about stress. It's about pressure. And I just need better strategies to be able to, um, to, to triage and take away that pressure. Spending an hour a day on something is not a big deal, but feeling like you have a weight that will never be lifted actually is a big deal. And so getting at that is kind of a separate question. So do you have things in place already to help you keep your email management down to an hour to an hour and a half a day? Because I think for some people, they probably wouldn't have gotten that result if they do a time tracker. And I recommend everybody do a time tracker. But if you, if from some people, they might actually be spending three or four hours a day digging out of email. So what do you do to keep your numbers so low? Yeah. So there are, there are certainly a few things that, that I have implemented and, you know, it goes to, to the point that it's very much an iterative process where you just tr keep trying to raise the bar and get better and better. But there, there's a few things. I mean, one certainly is that I try to be stingy with my emails in the sense that I don't want to be the person that's doing the endless round of, you know, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, whatever. Like, obviously, you want to thank someone, but you don't need to thank them the third time. Uh, like, if, if, if there's something that, uh, that 
doesn't really require a response, I try not to respond um, just so I'm not contributing to the, to the morass of information. Uh, another thing is if I sense that I'm getting into a back and forth where it's just, you know, this ping pong of emails, I will either call the person if it can be resolved that way, or sometimes it's it's not even about settling an issue. Sometimes it's just a person gets overly excited when they see that you're there and you're responding in real time. And so they treat email almost like an IM. And so if that's the case, I just say, okay, I need to slow this down. And so I will use Boomerang um, or you could use, you know, some other scheduling program to schedule the email for several hours in the future or several days in the future so that the person no longer thinks that they're going to get an instant response from you. Um, that's, that's another technique. Um, I certainly, I use un Roll Me, uh, which is a, uh, a great tool that allows you to bundle your newsletters so that you can kind of read them all at once in one fell swoop so that you're not, um, you know, burdened by having 25 different newsletters that are not that important in your primary inbox. Um, and another thing that I have done is, uh, and you know, this of course only works if you have an assistant, but um, there are certain types of messages that are pretty standard and pretty common. Uh, so for instance, if it's, I have an invitation to be on a podcast, or if there's somebody who requires a certain piece of information, or they need me to whatever, change their email address in my, you know, in the, um, in the email newsletter that, that I, service that I keep, um, I will forward that to my assistant. And there's a, a pre-established document that I've created uh, that, that lists the, exactly what should be done and they know to take care of it in that way. That is great. And I want to add a couple of things that I do that you touched on a little bit. Um, so one, I love MixMax for send later and bounce back into my inbox things. I find one of the challenges I have with email is that I used to use it as like a follow-up, like don't forget these people are still getting back to you and leave those in my inbox, which is a terrible approach. Yes, yes. So I love when I send an email that I can have it come back into my inbox in two or three days if the person doesn't respond so that I don't have to remember to like respond and I don't have to see it in my inbox all the time because I feel like that's part of that mental load, that stress of emails. Like those emails are just sitting there. I'm like, ah. So that's one of my favorite tricks. Um, and the other thing is, as you're talking about with your assistant, I have a ton of pre-written responses that I use as templates. So it's the same kind of thing. When somebody emails me and I can send them a standard response, I just copy and paste with like two minor changes instead of having to type up the email again. And I find that saves me so much time. Yeah, that's great. Good tips. Awesome. All right. What else? Anything else about email? Otherwise, we can move on. I think those those are some pretty good highlights. Awesome. All right. So the flip side of email uh, in some people's minds is meetings. Can we talk about meetings? We can talk about meetings. I know you're a you're a, a you know this 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 is your metier. <laughs> so uh, so this is fantastic. Um, so yeah, for for me, I. You know, I, I certainly try to avoid a lot of meetings uh, because it can get very wearisome. Um, I think that it, what I have uh, encountered a lot, I think that, that, that probably the trickiest thing that I have found is probably two, two elements that I have to dodge on a regular basis. One is clients that want to have too many planning sessions 
Um, so meaning, I think for sure you have to have planning sessions. You know, there is a, there is a role for that. But for instance, if I'm giving a speech, I need one planning call so that I understand what they want me to do, and then I will do it. You know, I, I've, I'm a professional, so I can put together my deck. I'm happy to send them the deck in advance to make sure it all looks cool. But I um, I have some clients that get overly twitchy uh, because maybe they haven't done the process before. And so they'll want to have multiple planning calls. I actually had uh, one client where we did we did an initial call to see if she wanted to hire me. And then she did. So then we had a planning call and then she wanted to, to have a planning call with like the rest of her team. I'm like, okay. So we had that call. That was great. And then they, they started to say, oh, well, before the event, we should have this other call. And I, I just, I, I couldn't at that point. I'm just like, guys, I, I understand <laughs> that, you know, you're, you're concerned about this. I want you to know, I do this 50 times a year. I feel really solid that I have all this information that we need. If there's something very specific or new that, that, you know, we need to cover, please let me know if I'm missing it, but otherwise I am good. So you have to just like push back on that. Otherwise, if you defer to other people, they will meeting you to death. Um, so that is, that is one thing where I've gotten aggressive about pushing back on meetings, even with clients. Uh, and then the second thing is people who want to have, like one-on-one -on -one coffees or something like that, which is very hard uh, for me because there's a, you know, there's just a lot of people that want to do it. And so I try to come up with other suggestions. Um, so I will, for instance, sometimes have group dinners. You've been to, uh, to one of my dinners, which was, which was a lot of fun. Um, and, and I, I actually like those better because it's a way that I can hang out with a lot of people at once and get to get to know people um, and, and it's, it's low pressure for everyone because in addition to me, they're getting to meet a lot of really cool people as well. And so I've found that, that group gatherings can be a really good way to get to know people initially. And, and then from there, you can decide if you want to be spending more one-on-one -on -one time with them as well. So for the dinners, I also have to say that going back to the idea of multitasking, I feel like you get a double bang for your buck with the group dinners also because now you have a chance to kind of network with a lot of people at once, but also show up as the convener, which brings value to everyone who's your guest. Because I met some wonderful people at your dinner. So that was great. Um, and in terms of pushing back on clients, I think that's actually really, really interesting because I was talking to somebody last week about a meeting that she has to go to every week. She, it's an internal company meeting. And she was like, I don't understand why I'm at this meeting. It is the biggest waste of my time. And I said to her, why don't you talk to your boss and ask them, why is it that you're being invited to this meeting? What do they hope you're getting out of it? What value do they want you to contribute? And her response was like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, I couldn't say that to my boss. And I, I find that to be a little bit foreign. I, mean, I know it's hard to talk to your boss in that way, but I think it's even harder sometimes to talk to your clients that way and say, I don't want to have a meeting with you because you're, they're your customer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, I mean, there's a real bias, of course, to just be like, oh, the customer is always right. And if the customer, if the customer wants it, um, then, you know, clearly we need to do it. But I, and, and this is something that early in my career, I, I'm sure I probably would not have done because I didn't have the, the level of confidence. But um, I, I have just come to the place where I realized that 
if you're going to really give value to your clients, you need to be the expert. You know, you clients sometimes just out of habit uh, or because they want control will try to treat you like a contractor, meaning somebody that they just tell what to do and they, they give you money and they tell you what to do. But if you want to preserve your respect and your positioning in the marketplace, you cannot allow them to treat you as a contractor. You have to be the consultant, which means that they give you money and you tell them what to do. And it is conceivable, depending on the client, that you might lose that client because, you know, they really do want a contractor to execute some things and, uh, you know, under under their watchful gaze. But that's that's just not not how I roll anymore and i've i've gotten to the point where i feel confident and comfortable enough telling people like no look this is this is not how it's done <laughs> you know when you when you give 50 talks in a year you know how talks are done and you know what's standard and having four planning calls not standard and i i think if you can say it with love uh, so that you're not getting aggressive or defensive, but just saying like, look, you know, I don't, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want you to waste my time. You know, th- this is, this is not going to be necessary. We got it. Uh, if you can answer the concern that they have, you know, it's not that they want them. It's not that they have to have the meeting. What they want is the security that the meeting will give them, that everything will go okay. And so if you can let them know, look, it's going to be okay, then they usually don't need the meeting. Yeah. And I think the same is true for internal meetings that when you're invited to a meeting and you don't know why you need to be there, you can actually demonstrate your own leadership skills by going to your boss and saying, I was invited, you invited me to this meeting. I want to know more. How, like, why am I being invited? What value do you want me to bring? How can I prepare to make sure that I successfully contribute to this meeting and that it's a good meeting? And they sometimes people don't even know why they're asking for meetings. And I think that same insecurity comes with client meetings when they're asking for more and more meetings that sometimes managers do the same thing where we invite people to meetings without really thinking about it. And maybe we we unintentionally invite people because we think we're being inclusive, but actually they don't need to be there. Or you get invited to something because this has actually happened. People have the same last name. And so you get invited to a meeting that you don't need to be at because they invited the wrong person. I've had people tell me this has happened to them in companies where they show up at meetings and they literally like, I think I'm the wrong person, but they don't say anything and they sit through the whole meeting. It's terrible. Oh, that is. Yeah, that's in really big companies where people don't all know each other. Yes, no, it's so true. My gosh. And you know, to to be clear, when you raise the prospect of not attending meetings, sometimes people will be receptive and sometimes they won't, you know, and and it and it's okay. It's okay. I mean, oftentimes for a good leader, if if they understand that you really don't even know why you're there. I mean, that should be a flag to them (laughs) that like, oh, either this person really shouldn't be at this meeting or I as a leader need to do a lot better job of explaining to you why I think you should be there so that we can all get on the same page. Like that can be a good opportunity to have that conversation. Um, That being said, there are some people that are not great leaders. And I, I, you know, in my early days as a consultant, Shortly after I started my business, I had a client and they were, you know, they were a, a larger client of mine. They were paying me a monthly retainer and they had 
a weekly staff meeting on Tuesdays and they wanted me to be there. And it was from 10 to 12 and it was, you know, downtown. It was kind of the schlep together. So it took a half day, you know, to between the meeting and, and getting there and everything. And it, it really was a staff meeting. It was just like everyone literally went around a table and talked about what they were working on. And after a while, I was like, guys, you know, I don't think I really should be here. I feel like this is not the best use of my time for you. Like, I, sh- I should be doing other different, better things. And the, the woman who was my client was just like, you're our consultant and we want you there. You know, that, that, that was it. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty clear and it was pretty clear that I couldn't say no. And so I did not think that was a great idea. Um, but I acceded because I had to, and sometimes, you know, that's, that's how it rolls. Um, and you know, when the time came to renew the contract, we parted ways because I think in a lot of ways we had a different philosophy about what was useful for the client and what wasn't. Um, so it it was okay. But I, I think that having that conversation, uh, is a way that you can demonstrate that you're, you're not just a butt in a seat. You are a person that is trying to create the highest and best value for that client or for that employer. And if you're going to be somewhere, you want it to count. And I think that forward-thinking leaders recommend, you know, recognize that and uh, and would see that as a positive. I think that's exactly it. Is that you can de- you you have to value to deliver. People are paying you to do great work, and if you can do better work by not being in a meeting then you should be talking to your manager about it. And if they disagree, like you said, sometimes they're going to disagree and that's fine. And then you go to the meeting and you're trying to be, you know, make the best of it. But if you don't even ever raise the issue, you're not, you're almost like abdicating responsibility. You're not even giving yourself and your manager a chance to say, maybe we should consider something different. Maybe this isn't a good meeting for you to go to, or maybe you only need to come to the first 10 minutes for relationship building purposes, and then you don't need to stay for the rest of it or whatever it is. So great. So I advocate for everybody to think about any meetings that they don't know why they're going to and see if you feel comfortable approaching your manager to talk to them about it. And for all of you managers, I suggest that you really think about the meetings that you're inviting people to and whether or not they really need to be there. So I think this might be a good place for us to wrap up. Dory, thank you so much for sharing all of your productivity wisdom with us. Um, Where can people keep up with you? Yeah, thank you so much, Mamie. Um, so the best place is through my website. It's doryclark.com, D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com. I have more than 500 free articles that I've written for places like the Harvard Business Review and Forbes and Entrepreneur available on the website, uh, many of them actually about productivity. And uh, if folks are interested in questions about how to develop your own breakthrough ideas and build a following around them, which was the subject of one of my books, Stand Out, uh, they can go to doryclark.com slash join, J-O-I-N, and they can download the uh, standout self-assessment for free. Awesome. I did that self-assessment and it was very helpful. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Of course. Well, thank you again for being here. And I look forward to keeping up with you and having more dinners and maybe having you back for a second episode to talk about all your new email productivity weightlifting, stress-reducing practices. Let's do it. I love it. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Mamie. Take care.